Hello and uh, welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and I'm going to be quick because I have to uh, catch a plane to Alaska in a couple of hours. I've been flying around a lot recently. Thank you to everyone who came out and saw me on the Dollop Tour live. Uh, we did three nights, uh, Seattle on Friday nights, uh, Saturday night we did Portland and uh, Sunday night we did San Francisco. The first of those is already up. You can listen to it. Uh, just uh, download The Dollop, search The Dollop. If you've never heard of The Dollop, it's a, an alternative American history podcast. Uh, last week they were number one on US iTunes. So it's a it's a brilliant podcast, really funny, but also really informative. So if that sounds like the thing that you might be interested in, and, and maybe you like me because you've come to this podcast... Uh, one of the first ones to dive in would be the most recent one. So uh, download that and have a listen to the dollop. So there's the first plug. There's heaps, by the way. If you hate the plugs, if you're not into the plugs, uh, fast forward a little bit because I've got a few. So I'm off to Alaska. If you know anyone in Alaska, if you're in Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska for the next four days, five days, uh, Wednesday through Saturday doing shows in Alaska. Then the next week, uh, Wednesday or Thursday through Sunday, I will be in Denver. And the week after Thursday through Saturday, I will be in Madison. Wisconsin. After that, in the first week of uh, January, I'm in uh, uh, Bermuda. Bermuda, that's where it is, right? Where the triangle is. I know nothing about Bermuda, but I'm going there to do some shows. So if you're in Bermuda and you listen to the podcast, or if you're going on a holiday to Bermuda, or you just get lost in the Bermuda triangle and you find your way down there, I will be going to Bermuda. Uh, Then after that, January 22, I'm recording my special for Stan in Australia. It's called Fire at Will, but it's really a combination of the best bits of my last two shows, uh, Free Will and Fire at Will. So I'll be recording that at the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne, January 22. If you want to see that live, there are tickets available to that. They are almost sold out. So you'd want to get in quick. Uh, My brand new shows, there you go, here it is. Uh, February 20, I'm doing a week of trial shows, work in progress shows in Canberra. They're nearly sold out, so get in quick if you want to come to those. And then Critically Will, which is my uh, brand new show. It's going to be the biggest tour I have ever done. Uh, Very excited about it. Uh, Got some big ambitions plans for this year for what we're going to do with the show uh doing my biggest ever melbourne comedy festival okay so i'll run you through what's going on uh basically it starts in adelaide adelaide fringe doing two weeks there then it goes to brisbane uh for uh, i'm moving up a venue i normally play the powerhouse which is a beautiful venue in brisbane but we're uh, going up a little bit in size this year so um i think it's at the town hall but anyway the, the details will be out soon it's not quite on sale yet but that's coming up after that then after that, uh, I'm going to Hobart. I think Hobart might already be on sale or it's about to be on sale. Going to Hobart for one night only uh, to do the show there. I've got uh, a month of shows in Melbourne at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at the Comedy Theatre, my favourite uh, home of comedy. I've you know done uh, six or so, maybe even more shows there at the Comedy Theatre and I love it there. Uh, so I'll be doing a whole month at the Comedy Theatre, but also in the final weekend uh, doing a couple of big shows at the Arts Centre. Now, the Arts Centre is the first place I ever saw stand-up comedy uh, when my mum took me to see Billy Connolly when I was 17. So uh, it is very exciting that I'll be doing a couple of big shows there. So if you want to come and see something special, maybe come out to those shows. But I'll be doing the whole month in uh, Melbourne and also, speaking of good venues, uh, April 8th, I think it is, but it's basically the second weekend of the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I'm not doing a show on the Saturday night because I'll be doing my show in Sydney at the Sydney Opera House. Now, you know it's exciting for me to do the main hall there, at the the concert hall there at the Sydney Opera House. And uh, we recorded my special there, Willuminati, uh, on a Monday night, I think. And uh, last year, 
uh, I did fire at will there I, on a oh, Thursday night, I think. Now, here's the thing. You get one night at the Opera House and you're trying to sell out two shows. And we've done pretty well, to be honest. It's been pretty exciting. But obviously, what you want is a Friday or a Saturday night. That's what you want to do. You want to go out to the Opera House on a Saturday night. So that's what's going to be happening. It's very exciting. Uh, so I will be doing uh, my brand new show, Critically Will, at the Sydney Opera House. One night only, but two shows on the Saturday night. So there you go. That'll be fun. Come out to that. Uh, after that, there will be shows in Perth. And I'm looking at Darwin as well. And I'm hoping there'll be some other places as the tour goes on i'm putting a lot of work into this one and uh, uh i i kind of i i'm hoping that i might spend a lot of next year you know just touring around the world doing the show so uh come out and see it uh, i think it's going to be really fun and it's going it's what i'm going to be working really hard on in the meantime i am also going to try to be doing some of these podcasts uh if, if you're only a listener to this one philosophy and i look at the numbers there are some of you who are uh, I have some other podcasts. They're more regular than this. Uh, there's one called Tofop, which comes out every week with my friend Charlie Clawson. It's pretty immature <laughs> a lot of the time, uh, but we've been doing that for uh, six years. That's the original podcast I did, and Charlie and I do that pretty much weekly. There's another one called Fofop, uh, where I do it with like international comedians. So uh, maybe if you're interested in kind of bridging the gap, here's, here's what I would uh, would recommend. If you're if you're more into the philosophy than the stupid comedy ones, there's a couple of episodes of Fofop that you might enjoy. Uh, I did two of them uh, most recently with a guy called Graham Elwood, uh, the director of Earbuds, the podcast documentary, but also from uh, Comedy Film Nerds, and uh, another guy called Dave Anthony. Now, Dave Anthony, if you don't know him, he does a lot of my um, episodes of Fofop. We've probably done 70 plus, 80 plus episodes together. And so we chat a lot and... Uh, he and Graham, in two separate episodes, have a lot of interesting thoughts on the US election. So maybe if you want to hear some from some Americans about what happened, uh, they might be interesting episodes for you. Um, okay, uh, so that's the plugs. I have a footy podcast also with Charlie. It's called Two Guys, One Cup, an AFL podcast. So if you like AFL football, you might want to look that up and have a listen. But anyway, here, look, <clears throat> I'm going to have a sip. I'm going to have a sip of my kombucha tea, and then I'm going to get into telling you what this episode is actually about. So, uh, Mark Colvin, I was very excited to do this. Mark Colvin is a, an Australian journalist, for people who don't know, a broadcaster. Uh, he's been the presenter of a ABC radio program, which is considered far and away the most prestigious. Well, AM and PM, there are two flagship ABC radio programs that are kind of considered the height of journalism in Australia. And uh, to be honest, when it comes to radio journalism, by a fair distance in a lot of cases. So, and consistently on a day-to-day basis, you can tune into these programs and hear an in-depth analysis of what is going on in the world in a way that you can actually still trust. Now, the truth is that I don't dip into it as much as I should. And I'm the sort of person who, you know, is up, to that sort of thing. So I guess for some people, it's not a program they listen to, but it is a program that I think the world would be much richer if everybody took the time to listen to. Um, I was very excited to have him on the show. I'm not getting this podcast. Okay. He's, uh, how do I explain this best? So, oh, I'll do a recommendation. There is a radio program in Australia on the ABC also called Conversations, hosted by the brilliant Richard Feidler, who I hope to have on this show at some stage. Uh, Richard and I have talked about it. We just haven't Uh, been in the same city to do it yet and he has this excellent radio show that they also release on iTunes in podcast form and I do make the differentiation because it's not a podcast it wasn't made to be a podcast but it is a radio program that 
unlike some other radio programs, which is just really the best bits of their radio programs that they release as a podcast. And I, and I don't really consider that a podcast, you know, in the same way as like, if you put a TV show, like if they put Seinfeld on YouTube, it's not suddenly a web series, you know, it was made to be a television show. You can rebroadcast it in that way. And it's a small differentiation, but I think it's one that I, I certainly make myself, you know, not, not necessarily with great judgment, but I think that there is a differentiation, but it is an excellent uh, program and it is well researched and, and well put together. And uh, they did a two-part episode with Mark because Mark has just released a book and uh, the book is about, uh, you know, his life and a particular part of his life. And I didn't really want this podcast to be about what's in the book because, you know, then you won't go and read the book. Like, you know, it's more interesting to me to to read the book or to know what's going on in someone's life and then maybe ask about some other things that aren't covered, you know, in those things. And then hopefully, you know, you might be interested enough in those things that you go away and you can fill in the gaps yourself. All that other stuff's already out there. You don't need me to go over it. Uh, I listened to Richard's excellent uh, conversations, the two-part conversations with Mark Colvin, and it was wonderfully autobiographical. It it did a great job of being an accompaniment to the book itself, you know, t- bringing alive you know, passages that are in the book, but I think it would be something that would be excellently listened to in conjunction with reading the book, and I think you would enjoy that. Uh, This, I hope, is something different to that. Um, You know, I I hope that we just had a chat, you know, that Mark and I had a chat. Uh, The thing I will say is that I was nervous, and I don't necessarily ordinarily get nervous about this, but Mark and I don't know each other well. We know each other a little from the internet and just bumping into each other, but but we don't know each other well. And, and, you know, I am genuinely respectful and intimidated by him. I find him a, a wonderfully intelligent and fascinating and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a person I really genuinely could have talked to for, for hours and days and, you know, had the conversation go on weekly, to be honest. And I think I would find him endlessly fascinating and, and, you know, and intimidating. And I certainly in, I haven't edited this podcast at all. I, I considered editing a couple of things. And the first one is because we did this a couple of days before the US election. And so there's some stuff in there that since what happened. Actually, to be honest, I think there's some stuff in there and some stuff that we talked about off air that actually probably it, it turned out to be true, which was that both Mark and I, and we had a more extended conversation about this off air, but there's a little in the podcast um, about the idea that if, if, if it was close enough, we did fear that Trump would win because we felt like there was some Trump voters who weren't telling anyone they were Trump voters. And it seems that at least in a small part, that was that was part of what did indeed happen. So I did think about editing around that. And there's another part where Mark does what anyone does in life, where he flips around. We're talking about North and South Korea, and he flips around the capitals of the two. But he's, I mean, and then he corrects himself. So I'm like, well, why would I... Why would I edit that out? Like, you know, I mean, we all, the smartest people in the world, you know, uh, make these sort of mistakes. And then I, I thought for a second about editing for my vanity, which is something that I never do on this podcast. Like I have been always very conscious of like, I, I, will, I will edit something out if somebody, if somebody who is a guest of mine, uh, they're going to look terrible if I leave it in or if, if they ask me to take it out. Like, but my own stuff, I try to leave it in warts, warts and all. But in this one, my questions are terrible. They're terrible. And it, I think the intent of my questions is good. That's what I will say. Like the things that I'm trying to ask Mark are things that I genuinely want to know about. But I think what the, part of the problem was 
that I couldn't put into words what I was genuinely trying to ask him because I found him so interesting that I was always trying to ask him a question and a half or really what I just really wanted to say was just tell me everything. Just tell me about everything. Tell me everything that I don't know. Just fix stuff for me. Reassure me. Just be smart and tell me how I can be smarter and, you know, and and so that's really was just the intent of all my fumblingly long questions. But if you've sat through this introduction, you are, list, you are used to me doing things that are fumbly and long. So thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for everyone for, for supporting this podcast, even how irregular it is. I've never checked numbers. Uh, I'm just not a number checker. And also, I don't want to make the differentiation between episodes. I like to imagine that I just put the episodes out and equal amounts of people listen, listen to each of them. Even though, you know, in my head, I know how the world works and I know more people are going to listen to the Tim Minchin one than listen to, you know, one by somebody that they perhaps have never heard of before. But I, uh, the, the service I use to load the podcast, I was loading it up the other day, and what they've done is they've added a feature where you don't have to go into the place to check what the numbers are. Just when you're loading up the thing, the numbers are just of each episode that how many downloads it has. Um, it's just there. And so I, what I realized was I hadn't checked it in years because I barely have time to fucking do the podcast. I certainly don't have time to sit around like checking the numbers or whatever, you know. Uh, but I was uh, very pleasantly surprised uh, to see uh, how many people had been listening, uh, not only to, say, the Tim Minchin episode, although that was certainly a, a, a very large amount of listeners and I was a little overwhelmed when I saw that, uh, but but also um, you know to one of, some of the ones that maybe the names I would consider to be less well known. Uh, I was uh, I must admit a little surprised to see how many people had been listening to those. So uh, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, I appreciate it. I have another podcast. <laughs> Did I mention that? I've been doing it for years. Some of you fuckers don't listen to that one. Uh, anyway, so. Um, uh, I've rambled way too long, but I did give you a warning at the start uh, that this was going to go on. So if you're one of those smart people who skipped and you've just tuned back in going, surely he's over by now. I'm not, but I am now. Uh, Enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson uh, from the name of the podcast. The podcast that just won't die. Uh, it feels like a horror movie, this one, because I keep wanting to put it put it down, to be honest. I've sent this podcast to the farm a few times in the last year in my mind, and then here's what happens. I remember that I asked somebody months ago to do the podcast, and it's finally time that they have a book out, and I think, oh, well, it'd be nice to do the podcast now. You know, this is a good time probably for both of us to do the podcast, so now I'm doing another podcast. This may be the last one, or I may have promised someone else something at some stage. So anyway, it's brilliant. I'm so glad to be here, and uh, this podcast always starts with one simple question. Uh, guest, who are you? Uh, my name is Mark Colvin. I am half English, half Australian journalist and broadcaster and I think probably my identity is pretty wrapped up with the the last part because I've been doing it for 42 years. I mean people already know that just from the way that you speak (laughs) compared to the fact that that was my introduction. You must be staring at me like what is going on? Not not at all because (laughs) Mr Anderson I used to listen to you and Adam on while driving my uh, son to school every morning. 
That's interesting to me, even that moment, because you have a connection. You were at Double J, right? Yep. So, I mean, founding part... founding member. Well, absolutely. For a couple of weeks after it started, I I joined. So this is uh, what's interesting to me already is because there is that sort of idea of like that. It, you know, if you were there as a founding member, the time that Double J was actually really good was the day before that. Like that's the <laughs> attitude of people who would listen to Triple J. Yeah, yeah. It was always the best just before you got there, right? No, so... really not. <laughs> because actually, when it started, it was kind of revol. It really was totally revolutionary. Because ev- before that had been this commercial wasteland, yeah. teenage wasteland of um, c- commercial radio stations that would only play singles, and most of them were beeped out. You know, if it wasn't. John Lennon didn't sing Christ, you know, it ain't easy. As far as Sydney was concerned, he sang Beep, you know, it ain't easy because 2SM was owned by the Catholic Church. So it was high rotation, top 40, and that was all. And yet there was this huge group of people who were going out to uh, independent record shops and trying to get their mu- and reading uh, imported magazines like Rolling Stone. There was no... Rolling Stone edition here then, and New New Musical Express, and buying albums. But they had very little in terms of what they could choose from. They didn't know what there was out there. And suddenly Double J was there, and and it it really wasn't, there wasn't a golden age pre-Double J because those first few years became the golden age. I mean, we had... And I mean, I think that's absolutely right. So... I guess that's kind of my point is like some things need the times to be perfect yeah. for them to, for that to happen. Yeah. It, uh, I barrack for a football team called the Western Bulldogs. I know you do and well uh, done because uh, yes. I barrack for the Swans and I, I hold no grudge because well, I was there in 2005 when we won after 60 something years and it was an amazing feeling. And yes, I performed so well at done. the uh, Swans breakfast in the morning <laughs> of the 2005 grand final. The City Swans are my second team, but it was... And it was an amazing moment. And somebody asked me, oh, well, ha- what do you think about next year? How will they go next year? And I said, to be honest, I don't care. Because yeah. the, the moment that happened, yeah. I'm never going to be able to wait that many years again for this no, same thing. That's right, Part exactly. of the, how great it was, was how long and long-suffering it had been beforehand. Yeah. That was all now part of that story to yeah. this great moment that I can enjoy. And I can never enjoy it all again in the same way. It's, it's, off- the sport is kind of like theatre without the uh, just hold on it's okay do you are we it? okay do you please uh, we'd, no, we'd, oh, oh, God, no we can okay. get out that's fine you sure <laughs> look at you you must be important <laughs> that's what, that's what I like they decided they'd change their meeting saw who was in here <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably you actually they between the two of you. us uh, so uh, no, I, I so I guess the question. I yeah, like, yeah. Sorry, what, what, please. We were talking about the. Um, oh yeah, no. I, I was just saying, sports like theatre without the predictable ending. Hamlet always dies at the end, you know. But right. but you don't know how it's going to turn out. And and that was the one performance of Hamlet where uh, where he didn't die, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's the one that you've been going for every time. Yeah, yeah. It's like somebody who's got been going to watch Hamlet like a thousand nights in a row, just exactly. hoping yeah. they've heard <laughs> that there is actually one night where he doesn't die, and yeah. I am not going to miss that night. Yeah. I don't care where I am in the world. Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. So uh, to be part of something in that moment, 
some of that is beyond your control. I was lucky enough that at age 42, I'm at a stage in my life and career where I'd followed the team for long enough and been through enough of the heartbreak to truly enjoy the story, but not be at an age where I was one of those people who's like, now I can die. Like, you know, I still, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still can enjoy it a bit. And I was yeah. able to be included in it a bit because I was lucky that it was at the right time in my life. So yeah. Double J... What did it feel like to be part of something that was genuinely sort of, you know, countercultural? It was incredible because this is hard for people to remember now, but because there was no internet, because communication was so slow, Australia wasn't just a few weeks behind the rest of the world. In a sense, it was still about five years behind the rest of the world. So Double J felt like, you know, the summer of love or something, you know, but happening half a decade later. It was, and it what was, brought uh, you there, though? How, how did you become part of that? What draw you, you know, drew you at that age? How old were you? I was twenty-one in seven. No, I was twenty. Uh, I was twenty-three. I was coming up. I was twenty-two. Okay. I was twenty-two in, in seven, at the beginning of seventy-five. When I joined Double J, I was I was twenty-two. I'd just finished my cadetship at the ABC traineeship of a year, and it, that's why I wasn't there on the first day because. The cadetship ran out two or three weeks after the station opened. <laughs> they wouldn't let me go until I'd finished. <laughs> but I was really champing at the bit, you know. And, and I had this, uh, you know, I'd grown up, uh, a lot of my childhood, I'd grown up in England. And, and uh, the BBC had a station called Radio One, which was pretty mainstream. But it it had a guy called John Peel, who's probably one of the most influential kind of youth broadcasters, the rock broadcasters has ever been. And before the BBC started uh, Radio One, there'd been a couple of pirate radio stations called Radio Caroline and Radio London. And uh, you used to push to uh, let's have our holidays in Suffolk because it was closer to the uh, the <laughs> the little ship in right. the in the um, in the uh, so you could North get Sea where, where Radio yeah. Caroline <laughs> broadcast from. They were literally pirate stations. Right. They broadcast. Well, there's been a couple of films about them, of course. And so there was Peel was on one of those. A guy called Kenny Everett was on one of those. And he was an absolute radio genius. He was a great friend of, of the Beatles, actually. And he used to produce the Beatles' Christmas records. And he had the same sort of uh, sense of humor and the same uh, influences of the things like The Goon Show and so forth. But he was a, just a mixing genius. This was all analog in those days. He, he, stuff that looked, sounds easy now was really difficult then. But Kenny would... he pioneered you know backwards tape recorders and speeding things up and slowing things down and 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 the man was an absolute uh machine for producing new characters he had a television show in right the so well, this yeah. is where I, the so, part of this story that i'm familiar with is growing up watching the kenny everett video show on yeah. the abc yeah and so and i remember many of those things are imprinted in my mind you know um Kremen of the Starfleet yeah. and like, you know, uh, Sid Snot and yeah. like, you know, b- yeah. bits like that. Yeah. In fact, yeah. there is a famous, I once, because I was telling a friend of mine about this one uh, Sid Snot routine that I remember because he, Sid Snot's big joke was that he'd be trying to toss cigarettes into his mouth, yeah. but he could never get the cigarettes <laughs> in his mouth. But I, I said to my friend, I said, I remember when I was young, no, he definitely in one of the sketches catches the cigarette in the mouth. Yeah. And then we, like, I mean, this is the world we live in now. Yeah. You can actually you can go find to it the on YouTube and find it on YouTube. And it's the, yeah, there is a famous one. Uh, G'day, Sid's not here. 
The other day I was in the park, throw cigarette misses. Uh, feeding the pigeons, throw cigarette misses. To my cat, throw cigarette catches it. It's pretty much goes down like that. It's, it's a very funny Perfect. joke. Uh, so you, I heard you talk so about this. So it's kind of on, intersection of comedy, right. rock and roll, the counterculture, you know, whatever you wanted to call that. Call that. Um, that and I'd grown up in a, in a England, mostly in, in different places. But the the writer Kingsley Amis said it was a period when you could walk into any pub in a provincial in England and say, "Has the major been in?" and they'd know who you were talking about. The place was populated by ex-wing commanders and right. majors, okay. and <laughs> <laughs> lieutenant commanders from the navy, whatever you know, chaps with um, leather patches on their elbows who smoked pipes and and um, told you that your hair was too short, too long. Okay, get okay. a haircut. Sure, very much the you know the opposite, the thing that was being rebelled against. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that that was the dominant culture. That was what the counterculture meant, I think. Right, which is, again, an interesting point in of itself, which is the need for a culture to be one specific way. There is a... I don't know if it's absolutely true, but in comedy there is a bit of a theory that, you know, comedians flourish, particularly com political comedians flourish during more conservative periods than they do during more progressive periods because there's just more to rail, rail against or whatever yeah, well, it is. Alexi Sale and Ben Elton and all those people came up largely because of Thatcher, didn't they, really? Absolutely. Yeah. And there has been parallels about that around the world. And I understand, you know, I, I would like to think that, you know, if you're doing your job properly, that you can find equally sort of, you know, interesting or hypocritical or, you know, whatever things to talk about on both sides. But anyway, regardless of that, I, I do think the idea of having something to to battle against or put yourself up against the wall of can create something amazing as well. So you're you're at Double J. What is your role there at the time? What are you doing at Double J? There's about three of us to produce all the news for the station. So we started off producing news bulletins and then uh, at that age, in that atmosphere, fairly fervid atmosphere, that last year of the Whitlam government, there was so much else to do, and we were all interested in lots of other stuff. So we started creating you know, an environment round and an arts round. and a, uh, We started a thing called the Prisons Program. I think that's the first time anybody in the world had ever done that. That was Nick Franklin who really started that, um, using letters from prisoners and interviews with ex-prisoners. The New South Wales it was only a New South Wales station in those days, and the New South Wales prison system was utterly scandalous so we were trying to break the boundaries I suppose but above all we were just trying to a kind of process the news in a way that people would understand who were 18 or you know it wasn't all about what was going on on the stock exchange or anything like that but b to actually talk to those people to find out what they were interested in and talk to them about um, the things that Again, just like the music that hadn't been played, there were lots of subjects that hadn't been talked about, particularly, for instance, sexual health or the state of, of schools and the autocracy of schools. Or you know, There were an awful lot of things that were kind of challenging the establishment again. And how much uh, backlash was there to, you know, I mean, you know, if you are suddenly putting all those things out there, what was the reaction? You know, what sort of, you're still part of the ABC? 
you know, like, so there's still, you know, I mean, I know when I worked there in the early 2000s, you know, the amount of pressure that comes with being part of the ABC, even though you're the, you know, the kid's arm of the, the ABC. Yeah, yeah. You're left to some of your own devices, but not all of your own devices. There are certain things that you still have to abide by. So what was that like back then? Well, it was the, the there was pressure from outside and pressure from inside. So the, there were the Bishop of Maitland, for some reason, which is in the Hunter Valley, uh, who theoretically shouldn't have been able to get the station at all because it was we had this weak little transmitter, but he somehow managed to get himself Probably put up. an antenna on top of the church. <laughs> Probably, yeah. what, what, He told everyone he's being, building a big... Uh, <laughs> look, we need a bigger cross. Spire. <laughs> yeah, out the back, <laughs> listening to Skyhooks. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Skyhooks was yeah. what caused the first backlash because it was the first, uh, you just like me because I'm good in bed, banned everywhere, first record played um fred nile who was the leader of the festival of light and this is 40 something years ago and he is still a member of the legislative council in new south wales he was very prominent in condemning us but also the deputy general manager of the abc a guy called clem semler was infuriated by the whole thing said it was absolutely disgraceful and that we were in light of what I was saying to you before about the music that the commercials wouldn't play, he came out with this bizarre argument that we played music that was only suitable for commercial radio. So the, there was a whole generation that just didn't get it on all kinds of levels. And and not only the music, he was disgusted. with. There was a, a documentary series we did called The Ins and Outs of Love, which was all about sex one way or another and getting young people to talk frankly about sex which was just astonishing at the time really really brand new you think it's stuff that you would just put on ordinary local radio or radio national now frank talk but um it it wasn't about people uh it wasn't about the the strength of the language it was just the idea that you would talk about this at all and in a period when you were supposed to get this from your priest or your teacher or your parents and instead you were getting it from your contemporaries i mean there must have been a part of that that was really exciting as well though it was fantastic yeah you know that opportunity there were so many things that you know were out of bounds were you i mean what was exciting you at that time was it journalism was it just being part of this kind of you know new thing in australia was it your friendship group was it all of these things what was kind of the you know at that age in your life what you what were you predominantly you know concentrating on I it was guess? a bit of all of that uh it was a it was amazing sort of social scene double j yeah um, i can imagine yeah it was I just can only fun imagine. i've and heard some stories <laughs> Yeah, well, Friday afternoons were always great. There was always a there was always a party at the end of the week, and the, you know, you're just living in this atmosphere where the the music is just rocking out all over the the building every day, and there's new stuff being played. And as time went on, uh, I, the first year, seventy five, the great thing about the first year was that you had everything going back to about 1965 to get through you know right. so you could go back to Joni Mitchell and early Dylan and people just hadn't heard some of the albums and uh, some of the tracks and so forth um and then 76 comes along and suddenly it's new wave punk all of that everything's changing all the time and and there's sort of battles going on in in the station people want more reggae people want you know, and there's actually a big battle inside the station about punk you know there are people who who there, who want 
real music and all of that sort of it's roiling and, and the whole station is run kind of like a collective so we all this gets played out in these m weekly meetings where people are lying around on on sofas or lying on the floor or getting up and shouting at each other about, I, about everything from the music i was to like the, I, I was lucky enough that i was in the last era of the the weekly meetings yeah. at Triple J. Well beyond the point where it was, you know, play your own music or anything like that. You know, by the time we were there, I think, you know, we could probably get away with a song of our own an hour or something uh. like that. But it was, we did get much more choice than that. We we made a few editorial decisions. Occasionally we w wouldn't play a track that we yeah. just didn't like that was yeah, in the yeah. schedule. But but we it was still the era of the weekly music meetings. Yeah. And I love those meetings. Yeah. And... I think there was a diversity of ideas in those meetings and that's what always made it great to me yeah. is that I think that, uh, and, and this is not a necessarily, because I don't know enough about what's going on there now to make any criticisms no, at all. And so this is not me making, but I, I like the idea that what those meetings used to produce was, you know, the metal guy come in and he'd yeah. have five tracks and four of them were unlistenable yeah. and would never <laughs> yeah. be played other than on the metal show. And then but somebody, was, one. somebody was carrying the flag for hip hop and somebody was et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. all you would need is that one moment or that thing, having that expert who would come from all these different areas and even having someone in the room who wasn't an expert. You know, yeah. I never considered myself to be a musical expert. I was like a comedian uh, who loved music. But yeah. what I would do was meet a lot of our fans. You know, I'd go to the Big Day Out or I'd go to yeah. music festivals or whatever and I'd meet a lot of our fans and I would understand what they liked. So I always thought my well, job on. was you were to also, bring... You were also in there arguing for Guns N' Roses all the time. A little you? bit of Guns N' Roses, <laughs> I've got to be honest with you, and a little bit against Motor Race. So I'm uh -huh. so sorry if any of the members of Motor Race are listening to the podcast. I feel in retrospect I was a little harder on you than I needed to be. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, okay, so we haven't actually got to the thing that I meant to ask at the start, but that's okay. This is I don't mind. Uh, so this is fun. Yeah, right. This yeah. is good. Okay, so okay. Before we get to the philosophy, then I want to just take one more beat off the road. Uh, you talked about fast forward. Uh, you talked about uh, listening to Adam and I on Triple J. Yeah, uh, with your son. Yeah, your, with your my son. youngest mostly. Okay, sure. So that to me is interesting. Did you keep an interest in the station or had you come back to the station through him? Who got who interested in it? That's No, I, I came back. We came back from London in, at the end of 1997 and uh, there'd been nothing really quite like Triple J there. And, the, and we just had it on in the car all the time, actually, from 19, early 1998 onwards, really, for the next few years. I mean, that's amazing to me because I know what some of that stuff must have been like because I just know how few skills and how many anxieties I had at the time about, you know, being this kid from the country who'd done a couple of years of stand-up and then I was suddenly living in Sydney, yeah. you know, this overwhelming city hosting this show with this, like, insanely, you know, smart and, you know, confident, you know, guy that I'd met, you know, on Good Newsweek. I'd met him on the television. Oh, right, okay. You know, he had a radio show, you know, yeah. like... I was certainly always felt like I was the person who at some stage somebody was going to come and tap on the shoulder and say, hey, you're, you, there's been a mistake. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> there's been a horrible mistake. And what I think that meant that I did, you know, in retrospect, if I had my time over, you know, is that I probably tried a little harder than I needed to. Like, you know, I feel like yeah, I was... Look, the good <clears throat> thing about it for me was that it was a continuation of that idea... That at Double J, that 
not that it was an amateur radio station, but that it didn't have to sound super professional. And if you go back, I mean, somebody was saying this to me the other day, listening back if, to the few tapes that still exist of that early period, and then you listen to what the ABC sounded like at the time and what the commercials sounded like at the time. Well, the, the commercials were that, you know, hyper-professional, shouty, lots of echo chamber on the microphone and full of revive 45 stacks of wax kind of slogans and the abc was much more sedate and every word was written and it didn't sound i mean i i i a lot most of what i do on the radio is written but i write it to be as conversational as conversational as possible and i'll go off script when i need to uh and but double j sounded like people your age talking to you and it didn't sound like people were desperate to grab your attention they were going to get your attention just by being themselves it's interesting to me you you seem to have an open-mindedness to it i um and i think that a lot of people do like but the generational thing has by been, the way it helped that you were really funny well i i i I feel like if tapes existed, <laughs> I might be able to prove you wrong. I may have been occasionally... You weren't the, funny every day, yeah, perhaps. The bits you remember. <laughs> yeah, that's what I always say to people. People mm. come up and go, you guys were great. And I'm going, I'm so glad that tapes of it do not exist so you can go back and have your memories destroyed yeah. like I did when I tried to watch the goodies in my 40s. Uh. But, <laughs> but uh, I, sorry, the, the thing that I w- was... In, in, the thing that I am interested in is this idea of checking into the next generation with open-mindedness. Oh, yeah. So, or with an open mind, I guess is the best way to put that, is that, you know, I felt like that when you got involved in Twitter as well. I feel like you've been a person who doesn't, you see so much in the press and stuff, oh, Twitter's stupid, it's all, you know, this new media's stupid, everyone's stupid, yeah. and it's like Triple J's stupid now, they're all stupid. This, this idea that you go into these things with some sort of open mind is that something absolutely i mean i think that's that's kind of part of my dna is open-mindedness also i've got so much out of twitter i've got so much out of people who are much younger than me people that i've met through twitter people my own sons you know my music i i was uh uh for instance i was fairly uh closed off to Radiohead until my eldest son persuaded me uh, to, and now I'm an absolute Radiohead nut you know and and lots and lots of music that I've that I've got since they say that your musical taste gets stuck either when you're 27 you know 17 or 25 or whatever but I've never really liked that idea I, I've I like lots of the music that was playing on Double J at the time but I'm always open I love it when I find a new band yeah I I I love that as an attitude and I I hope that I am that person but of course as you get older you increasingly find that you go back to the things that you like and you know more regularly than you go to something new yeah it's like a bit of elastic in a a sense but the the other thing that I've because I'm really a lyrics person as much as a music person and these kind of uh, great writers keep coming along yeah absolutely so okay uh, I, mean, I meant to ask you do you have a philosophy that is actually that question that i meant to ask you at the start of the podcast and we're 25 minutes in so okay. i haven't qu- quite got to it early on but i feel like this has been okay so far so uh do you have one yeah i think i'm you could probably describe me as a stoic i'm a uh-huh. uh, in terms of 
of religion, I'm an agnostic. Um, I think there's a one of one of the things that happens to you is is in terms of having a philosophy, is that you you probably have a character which de- decides some of your philosophy, and but you may not know what that is. You may go through your whole life not really knowing what that is, but if you have a near death experience, then you find out quite quickly who you are. And back in 94, 95, I was six months in hospital. But more to the point, I, I came very, very close to death. I had a, a d- disease which, which uh, meant that I was hemorrhaging badly from the lungs and the stomach. And to such a degree that they ran out of my blood group in London and had to chop a, some more down from Manchester. Wow. It was that, you know, I was losing blood that fast internally. And also my kidneys failed and my lungs filled up with fluid so that if I even leaned back a few degrees, I would start to drown in my own fluid. Uh-huh. Um, and that lasted, that was a period of about a month, not quite a, as bad as that all the time. That was the worst of it. But it was a month before I was out of the woods and even then I was really, really sick for a long, long time. And what I learned from that was you you know you have when you're younger i think most of us have periods of despair or darkness where you think you know do i want to go on i don't mean that i was suicidal but you know can i really manage this can i do i really do i really want life that much and what that taught me because i really never even considered dying during that period what that taught me was that i've got some kind of inner resilience that I am somebody who wants to live so that's the innate part and then the learned part I think is is uh, and this is where the stoicism comes in you know you think stoicism is just resistance to pain or a stiff upper lip it's not that it's actually uh, proper philosophy which is about understanding that the universe is not in your control and that the only things you should ever worry about are the things that you can control and that's mostly things within yourself yeah i think that is certainly something that i recognize a lot of in my life in fact it's because i've chosen a very creative and often very random life yeah it is that nature of the fact that i treat it and i think without having studied it yeah. And certainly my father hadn't studied it. He's yeah. a dairy farmer born on the road that he now lives on 73 years later. But I would say that is almost what how you would best describe him. And I feel like it's the best quality I took from him is just try not to worry about too yeah. much about the things you cannot control. Yeah. But also to have a kind of constant, you know, and again, can, I know that's not exactly what you're talking about, but I, I no, do like is. that idea of... That's part of it. <clears throat> so... Uh, all goes Where did back that to come a, the, from? That all, that all goes like, back to... I mean, to I know a, that you say that some of it is like, you know, innate, it's your character, it's who you are. Yeah. But it, it, how do you feel like that had developed as being your predominant characteristic? Well, you think you, you think it through because of what you have to go through. Right. <laughs> and there's been an awful lot of things that have been out of my control. And so chronic illness, particularly that first six months, made me... I always joke that the word patient is is uh, very carefully chosen because what you need is patience. But it's also understanding that if you 
uh, if you're going to survive these things, you have to sort of do what you're told. You've got to trust the doctor. You've got to respect the doctors. And I've been through the hands of a, a lot of very, very experienced specialist doctors, obviously renal physicians and rheumatologists and all of those people. I really despise anti-vaccination people and alternative medicine people who and I still get it you know you you should really try I've got a I've got an immune system disease which means my system goes crazy the immune system goes crazy and uh, it's remarkable how many people tell me that I need such and such a herb or drug or uh, alternative medicine whatever because it will boost my immune system I don't need it to boost it that's the problem you know? <laughs> actually they need a little bit of your immune system yeah in like one tenth of that in I'll a jug of water jar. and we will start our own little <laughs> business on the side yeah. I think yeah uh, so it's interesting to me that because it feels like that is rising, that anti-vaccination world, that yeah. like, distrust of science world. I feel yeah. like it's why we're not paying enough attention to climate change yep. in the ways that we are. Because they are issues where you just have to say, I trust science. I give over my ego to the fact that there is someone more qualified than me to make this decision. But, but you don't just do it on trust. You don't have to just do no. it on trust. You can then, it's like evolution. You can, people say evolution is a theory. Well, yes, it is a theory because science works on theories. You can go and look at that theory and then there's a philosopher called Karl Popper, the great philosopher, 20th century philosopher of science. And basically what he talks about is something called falsifiability. So you take a theory and you try to falsify it. You keep on attacking it, wave after wave of attacks. And... Gradually what happens, evolution is a great example of that, is that you keep on attacking it and the number, the probability that it is correct grows and grows and grows and the probability that it's incorrect reduces and reduces and reduces. And no scientist will ever tell you, this is one of the problems with the climate change debate, no scientist will ever tell you that the probability has reduced to zero because they're scientists and what they will tell you at most is that the probability of x is approaching zero you know that's the point that you that you can if you're interested in evolution or if you're interested in vaccination or if you're interested in climate change you can trust them or you can go and really immerse yourself in what they do and say there are great writers about all these things stephen jay gould on evolution all kinds of people you know and so, yeah, I don't think it's about trust. What they really need is the advertisers involved because if yeah. they, they will tell you 90, it kills 99.9% .9 of germs so they won't tell you <laughs> that the right. point 0.1 is the one that's you actually right. have to worry that's about. Right. Right. Whereas the climate scientists are the opposite. No, yeah. I mean, well, this is the thing with science. There's a great history of the universe show. They do at the observatory, at the Griffith Park Observatory in Los Angeles. And uh -huh. they, uh, they do a pr big presentation. They project the universe, explain where we are and kind of... The, it's, and then it's a walk through people's theories throughout the ages of what it all meant and they you develop it and one of the most stark reminders is that there were people who were celebrated as geniuses of their time who's thinking yeah for a thousand years went is going no we've challenged it all these times yep. we keep trying to disprove it and we yep. can't disprove it and then a thousand years later somebody finally does disprove it yeah as, as late as uh, the 18th century not long i think before C captain cook arrived here everybody was sure that the stuff we breathe was called phlogiston 
They had no idea that it was, <laughs> that it was made up of oxygen and nitrogen and the rest of it. They, and phlogiston was 100% believed by the whole lot of them. So why do you think there has been this rise of the anti-intellectualism or this kind of distrust of, you know, what these groups that we were trustful of? I think it's really closely connected to the stuff that I do every day in terms of covering politics. I think there's that the biggest danger uh, that we face at the moment is that it's becoming easier. And we thought that the internet was going to bring everyone together. But instead, what's happening is it's becoming easier and easier and easier to lock yourself in your own bubble and to just keep on feeding yourself stuff that is reinforcing your beliefs and it worries me a lot because particularly because in recent months Facebook which is one of the most powerful entities on earth now has been flicking its it's changing its algorithm it changes its algorithm all the time as we all know but it's been changing its algorithm more and more to uh, do exactly that if you've been interested in such and such you will get more and more stuff about such and such and i think they their company that company for instance needs to really rethink its social responsibility it is interesting isn't it that uh, i remember when i grew up in the country there was a very it was a very small place you know yeah. uh, 416 people 2011 census, 2016 census, anywhere between three and four billion people. Who knows? I don't think there'll be <laughs> very reliable results. But I, um, it's a it's small town, probably less than 500 people. And so you are constantly, when you go to anything, you have to see a whole bunch of people who are just different to you. Yeah. And in this day and age, you, you don't really need to as much. You can find, you know, at least online and in those communities, communities that agree with the same thing. Well, it doesn't matter what you're into. It, I, I think it can be very positive in a lot oh, of absolutely. ways. Absolutely. One of the, just going back to Double J, Triple J, one of the really great heartening things when Triple J went national was that in towns like yours, suddenly there were kids who were gay or, you know, had different ideas and suddenly they had a link into community much larger communities and they were able to realize that there were people like them out there yeah and i think that has been a major positive yeah of those it's a huge positive and it, what we didn't kind of see coming was this idea that it would also become echo chambers that everybody i mean i myself we were having a little chat w about this before we started but i myself have to constantly remind me to check in with people that i don't agree with yeah because it becomes very easy. Like, I mean, certainly if, if I had had to predict off my Twitter feed whether Brexit was going to happen, yeah. I would have called that one the wrong way. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. So I didn't understand what was going but on to there. To be fair to you, all the polls were wrong about that. Well, Everyone was wrong about that. But tell me how you prevent yourself, you know, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a broadcaster who needs to be outside that echo chamber and consider all these things. How do you keep yourself from not being part of that you know not becoming part of that the usual arsenal of skepticism and asking the questions that journalists always ask plus I, I, on twitter I've, i have about uh, i follow about two and a half thousand different people or institutions and i try to make sure that i don't confine my following to people who I agree with. By the way, that, that's, you know, this goes back to what's your philosophy. I don't have a political philosophy as such. I really do try to make up my mind on all the issues. I think that's really important, particularly in a job like mine. Um, 
you know, I've got nothing against the idea that journalists should be on one side or another in some fields, but not at the ABC. I think people pay their taxes to trust that an ABC journalist will go at any... I'd like to think that I would go into any interview and um, people wouldn't know what my position was before I started. I'd like, I like to think that I go for the... Uh, above all, go for the devil's advocate position in every interview, you know. Is, there's a difference also, though, isn't there, between uh, achieving the truth in journalism yeah. Or, or, yeah, or having an appearance of, like, balance. Yeah. yeah no, I'd, climate I'd, change is a very good example yeah, of yeah. that, right? There's such well, a thing can, as false balance, right. absolutely. And so... You can't... How do you... you can't, cut uh, you that can't, out. You can't balance the flat earth theory. Sure. But how do you decide which and ones flat earth and which ones... I don't think you can balance vaccination either. Mm -hmm. It's too dangerous. Right. And climate change is... I think has swung way into that, into that camp as well. Uh, obviously, you've got to keep, and again, it goes back to the thing about science. You've got to keep testing every theory, and I don't think that you should just lock out people who don't believe in climate change. But I think largely you should lock out people who are fighting against vaccination because the public health implications are so huge. Herd immunity is really measurable and whatever the percentage in the 90% area it is if it drops below a certain amount then all the people who have vaccinated their children and protected their children by doing so are endangered by the tiny minority who don't and so you just this yeah you it's, it's false it's, balance yeah. to keep on giving them a platform it's taking a shit in the water supply because you only drink coke <laughs> That's right? very good, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. So, <laughs> nice things you're probably not allowed to say on PM. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I am interested in, uh, you know, the idea of society and how you view our role as individuals and as being part of a society. Because as a reporter, as a journalist, you have found your home at the ABC, which says to me, at least from the people that I know who work at the ABC, because you don't come here for the money and you don't come here for the easy hours and you don't come here for the invites, the logies and those sort of things. Yep. You come here, I think, probably because you think it's the best place that you could you know, fully realise what it, you want from your job. And secondly, you believe perhaps in some element of uh, human beings as a society and that you have some role to fill as part of a broader society. Can you tell me how you feel about the your your what you think your responsibilities are as an individual versus a part of a society? Yeah, I think the, it was Mar Margaret Thatcher who said there's no such thing as society. And then she goes on to say there are only individuals and their families. And uh, she, it, it was never quite as harsh a statement as it's sometimes reported as being. But nevertheless, the effect of Thatcherism, which I covered as a journalist and as a foreign correspondent, was to smash up society to a large degree it, it britain at that time was a real mess and uh the you know mass massive reform was needed i have no question about that but there was a there was a heartlessness a coldness uh, about that which i think comes from believing that there's no such thing as society and we've just been talking about the way that people can lock themselves away from each other and from real debate now i mean the, the, it's very worrying that people will quite often start debates with abuse now um 
in, in ways that never used to happen except at 11 o'clock at night just before closing time in the pub. Um, but, yeah, I think the, the society exists and that people... Uh, that that so- something like the ABC, which was semi-modelled on the BBC, can be a really unifying um, factor in society, and and it can only do that by being trustworthy. Uh, so that that feels to me like that is a a, a reasonable responsibility to have on your shoulders. That's what I would say it is. I mean, I I know that you host one of you know the flagship you know programs that people go to for you know reliable news you know somebody somebody's interested in knowing what the story really is and going to hear stories that you're probably not even going to see on you know necessarily abc news bulletins and things like this this is Mm. really sometimes you know getting to stuff that you never imagined was was something you needed to be hearing about yeah uh that feels to me like a great responsibility so how how has that changed in the time that you've done it? Has it changed in the time that you've done it, or do you, with your stoicism, is it just I come in each day and I and I do it and I try to do it the best I do it every day? No, well, I I I think what happens is you you bring you know the the, the great artist um, James McNeil Whistler. He's the guy when Oscar Wilde said, "I wish I'd said that." Right. He said, <laughs> "You." <laughs> You will, Oscar. You, you will. will. He was a very yeah. funny man, <laughs> and uh, and um, he was. There was a libel case, and the lawyer said to him, "How long? This p- picture only took you half an hour to paint, didn't it?" And he said, "No, it took me my whole life." You know. So there's that thing of there's a kind of, kind of accretion of experience, and the things that you've seen, the other people's libel cases that you've seen, the complaints that you've had to deal with. From the ABC, within the AB, from outside the ABC, but then you have to grind through the ABC's complaints procedure, that instills in you this idea that you've got to get it right. And you know, you, every journalist starts off trying to get it right, but you learn more and more and more about the, the value of fact checking, and also the you know just little tiny things that you can t- take a word out or put a word into a sentence, and and change everything you can uh and and change everything to the degree that you get a libel suit and even then i mean one of the things that i always remember is a is a a libel suit that andrew ollie the late andrew ollie was involved in and the abc lost because he because of a bizarre coincidence where he he was doing a story about a particular company which was owned by a bloke whose name i now can't remember uh, and he was sued over it, and they'd done really extensive fact-checking, and then it turned out that there was a company with an identical... It was a Sydney company. There was a company with an identical name in Western Australia which had a director with the identical oh. name. <laughs> so you learn from that. I worked at, five, at Four Corners for five years too, and where you really just have to just keep on cutting away and cutting away at, at, uh, until you're sure of a fact um, because it's going to be whatever happens. It goes to air on four corners. Somebody's going to raise it in Parliament or whatever. But one way or another, you get you get to be cautious. But also, the other thing that I learned at Four Corners, we had a really great lawyer. We had a really great legal department at that time. And what they 
taught us was that you could really push a story much harder than the ABC had ever done before if you just couched it right, put it in the right context. As I say, added a word here, changed a sentence there, whatever. So I don't... I. The danger is being overcautious, and I try really hard not to be. Sometimes, it just happened the other day, a particular reporter brought me a story and said, uh, you know, you might want to just, I don't, I don't know if I've gone too far. And I actually pushed it up a bit. I jazzed it up, I, you know, pushed it harder, because you just get that judgment. It's just about time and experience. And trusting your instincts, that yeah. the fact that you have done all this work up to this point to get you ready for this. Yes. Yeah. Is that instinct? I, it's not. I mean, I think instinct is, is well, yeah, maybe that's well, the definition of instinct, I mean, maybe actually. Trusting no, maybe your, that is the trusting definition your training of to real the point instinct. Is that actually, it becomes instinct. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's it. Yeah, a, yeah. I, I bring this up a little on the podcast, but I, I always think of Steve, I interviewed Steve Waugh, and he was one of my favourite cricketers. Oh, and, uh, God. I asked him what it was like. I said, how do you decide which shot to play? This is all I really wanted to know. I was like, when, when the West Indies are bowling to you at 95 miles an hour, yeah. how do you have the yeah. time to go, I'm going to cut it or I'm going to hook yeah. it? And yeah. he says, well, you don't really. It's not like you have that moment in your head where you say, I'm going to play the cut shot. Yeah. You hope that everything that you've done up until that point has put you in the position that if you get out of your own way yeah. and trust, I think he said, muscle memory. muscle memory and your decision making and the fact that you've like done this. Bradman hitting the, the ball at the water tank hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, isn't it? You know, that's the same story. Or the idea of, I mean, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is a bit of a pop yeah. psychologist, 10, but you know, hours. the 10,000 hours is. It's something that comes to mind. Look, I don't want to take up all your time because you actually have a job having, to do as well. I'm but, having a ball. But mate, I have a lot, lot more to ask. So <laughs> I'm going to keep asking away. How do you feel about the state of news and journalism now? Because you've just talked about, you know, you've relied on we've got to get it right and we've got to push it and we've got to make sure, you know, that old school idea of news as being, you know, news had to be something that someone else did not want you to know mm -hmm, about, you mm -hmm. know, didn't want you to be saying, you know, proper news, not yep. just reporting a press release or yep. not just saying what, you know, this person who wants to plug their tour or whatever, you know, their book even want you to say, you know, you're a journalist. Yep. But so much of the media now is about first rather than fact, you know, it's yeah. about being the first person to put the rumour out there or the sources say or the... So how, how do you feel about the state of journalism really at the moment? Really yeah. worried. I gave the Andrew Olley lecture in 2012 and I said then that the number of PRs was about to exceed the number of journalists in the country. It's long, long past that now. We are outnumbered. And, as, and it's not just that, but the newsrooms are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And as they shrink, people have to do more with less. That includes us. We've got much shrunken staff. And that does mean some days that stories that we'd like to get done don't get done because they just involve too much work and there aren't enough people to do them. Uh, but, you know, we're in a relatively luxurious position. Um, I think there's, there's uh, the... There are great people out there still trying to push at the boundaries, still trying to break stories and all of that. And um, some of them are half my age. And uh, I'm really in favor of, of, um, the, of pushing out the boundaries of what journalism is. I mean, people, people think that BuzzFeed, for instance, is all cat videos and listicles, but actually they've got remarkably good journalists working there in Canberra, for instance, and they're 
moving out into investigative and explanatory journalism and I think that's great because it just goes right back to that t double J idea of trying to get to get to young younger people in ways that with stories and with ideas that they might not otherwise see but I overall, mean I think BuzzFeed and I I'm glad that you said that because actually there was a here at the ABC and I a few years ago there was quite prominently some comments you know that were disparaging of organizations like BuzzFeed yeah. and having seen what they did particularly during the election campaign because yeah. I was overseas for the whole time but I was following a lot of it online and really some days they were the only people asking interesting questions or at yeah. least getting an interesting story out of the Mark campaign. Mark Stefano and Alice Workman they're really really very very good and sharp and they've got no uh They've got no idea of when to stop, which is, I think, I say in my book, I say somewhere that we were subversive at Double J, but then I think that all of journalism should be subversive. It should, you know, the, you're, you should be the person at the back of the, the the press conference going, yeah, but why or what? You know, how, how? come on, tell us the truth. That's subversive in itself, you know, but there's fewer and fewer that's one of the problems actually is is that because there are so few journalists real journalists around you'll get to a press conference find there's only two or three people there where there used to be 20 or 30 and if there are 20 or 30 people they've all got lots of different questions if there's two or three people they've probably just come down to get a a sound grab for a news bulletin or whatever and they might just ask one question and piss off Oh, I was being told a story yesterday about a, a friend, a fr well, uh, the, uh, my co-executive producer on uh, Gruen, a guy called Nick Murray. He uh, loves a little bit of a protest and there was yeah. a protest down near his place the other day and he, there was one cameraman down there. And yeah. so he just, because he's curious and is a TV producer, wandered over and said, who are you here shooting for? And he said, well, I'm shooting for everyone now. I do all the overnight wow, stuff. They yeah. just send out one camera and yeah. everybody gets the same you know, you know, he's getting the same footage. So you're living in a world where even competing news sources are all sourcing their footage from the one guy with that one camera as well. Yeah. So there you, know, you can flip it though. Lee Sales, my friend and colleague Lee Sales, she occasionally will just turn up at a press conference, and because there are so few people there, and because she's Lee, and you know, the people just hang back a little, she can just turn a press conference with somebody who's yeah. refused to come into the studio, she can turn it into a one-on-one -on -one interview. Yeah, 7.30 unplugged. Yeah, <laughs> We've exactly. just brought this That's in. Right. Sorry, we're taking it on the road. <laughs> you thought this was a press conference? <laughs> <laughs> this is a surprise 7.30. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new ABC show. Surprise 7.30. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you don't want it to happen to you. Sam Dastiari. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly got a gig before, because of uh, Sam Dastiari because he was going to launch uh, Mark's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Mark did message me during that day going, are you in Sydney tonight? <laughs> uh, Sam's had to pull out, it turns out. <laughs> I would have thought that he probably could have done it. Uh, but anyway, so do you? what's the hope for journalism then? If you have a... if. I mean, I've stopped buying the newspaper and I feel bad about it. I still subscribe to a whole bunch of online media sources, but it happened about a week ago. It's very recent to me. I've been buying since I was at journalism school in, even growing up, even my 
dairy farmer dad read the newspaper every day, yeah. front to back. So it was always one of those things where I was like, well, you read the newspaper every day. Yeah. And then I got to journalism school and, you know, you would all try to outdo each other because I was in Canberra. And so everybody would try to get to class having read more, you know, national papers than yeah, the yeah. other people. So often, you know, in the morning you were reading five or six newspapers before yeah. you would get to class and stuff. And then I was in the gallery and it had that same sort of... You know, the competition at Canberra Press Gallery, even at the bottom rung, which yeah, is yeah. where I was in that, uh, you know, there's competition between you and the other person on the bottom rung, <laughs> you know, to, to be yeah. doing more than them. And so for the rest of my life, even when I haven't had to, I have always been a person who loved buying the newspaper, loved sitting with the newspaper. And I, I just was buying them. And I would flip the pages, but there was nothing in there that I hadn't read earlier that morning, you know, online or the night before when somebody had tweeted about it or particularly international stories. I was like, I read this in the New York Times four days ago online. Like, I don't know why I'm buying this anymore. So where do you see the future of journalism being? Do, do, Do you see a way out of where we are now? Could it be an opportunity that we're burning it down and it's actually going to spring up, you know, like the phoenix into something better? Well, I've, I've said for several years that I thought that the print editions would die, certainly in weekday print editions. I, I subscribe to quite a number of newspapers, but I read everything on a tablet or a phone or a laptop, and uh, I, I, uh, I very seldom pick up a newspaper nowadays, and uh, I don't feel that I'm missing out because of that. As you say, it's 8 to 12 hours old by the time you've got it, and what I want, what I need to be professionally is right on the front edge and the rolling edge. And I think Twitter's been fantastic for that. You know, there's been a number of nights on air with huge stories where you can just get way ahead of, of everybody because Twitter is just pushing it out there. I discovered that as far back as 2009. But Twitter, what you, you, can, what you can get off Twitter is either... Uh, putting together your own story out of working out who's reliable and who isn't in little bite-sized chunks or you get really good information because you click on a link to The Economist or The Washington Post or The uh, London Daily Telegraph or The uh, Le Monde or, you know, all of that stuff. And so that is mainstream, the reviled mainstream media. And what do you do if that's gone? And I think there are a few good signs, like Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, and and so far he's the guy who owns Amazon, and so far he's largely left it alone. I there was a good article in the New York so. Times the other day. I don't know if you read it, uh, uh, positing the theory that they're look, we're looking at Twitter in the wrong way. That looking at Twitter as a tech startup, you know, yeah, like when it's it going to be, be Facebook, Instagram, where it's like it should be the new, like media. And yeah. there was even an argument that he could buy it, much like he bought the yeah. Washington Post. But as a there's even a rumor going around that Elon Musk, the Tesla guy, will buy it because. Twitter is very interesting. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about Twitter, like not just how it is used for your work, but how you've seen Twitter change in the time that you've been there. Yeah. Because I think Twitter is a very different place or it feels like a different place now to what it was when you first got involved in Twitter. How do you feel about Twitter now? Um, Well, you know, the experience hasn't changed that much for me. Mm -hmm. I know it's changed a lot for some people, and I think it's much, much worse for women than it is is for for men. Um, I don't get, you know, horrible... I don't get a lot of really... I do get some, but I don't get a lot of really, really horrible trolling abuse, uh, and I block seldom. 
when when pe when people start being really abusive, I block. But I think the introduction of the mute function has been really good because you can just ignore people and they don't know that you've muted them. No, I like I like the mute because I think it's everybody's right to like have their own opinion on yeah, this yeah. thing. You don't need to agree with what I'm saying and you, you certainly have the right in the same way as I like to throw things at the telly and get angry at people and whatever. Yeah. I would never want to deny you that, but I don't need to hear about it. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you can, that's, that, right. that's for you, that's not for me. Yeah, yeah. And so the, and sometimes I'll just mute somebody for a day because, uh -huh. because they're just really boring and yeah. carrying on about one particular Oh, no, no, idea. no. Please, please, anyone who's listening to this, if, if, if it's a day where I have to sell a lot of tickets or something, <laughs> feel free to put the mute on. Just flick it back a couple of days later. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's more, more you, the boredom I'm referring to is more that somebody will just say the same thing again and again and again, express the same opinion. But I think the other thing is, I think just there's something about the way that I do Twitter myself. It, it actually reads, or sometimes almost reads more like a, an old um, an old style news feed coming off a telex. You know, it's just links to, links to stories with a, a droll headline or a straight headline, whatever. And also I'm very, I've always been extremely, tried to be anyway, occasional, um, I occasionally lose my temper a little bit, but generally I try to be extremely polite in responding to people. And so I think pe people pick up on that a bit. So I have I have very good conversations with people, and I don't I think I get a, a quite a bit less abuse than some people do in in, in uh, our area. I mean, I, look, I certainly think that as you mentioned earlier, women, particularly online, oh, it's I, I horrible. Think that's it's the, the one where I dreadful. Said. And of course, uh, yeah, really sadly for me that my industry, comedy, like people say, like, you know, if, even if I post something about like a, a female comedian that I like, uh, to this day, they will, I will get messages about me promoting that person that I have never got about me. Yeah. You know, no, nobody's ever written to me that they want to yeah. do those things or say those things. Even people who hate me have never written yeah. those things. But just because I said so I like great, this person. Um, uh, women comedians coming up. I mean, that's one of oh. the great things about the, the whole comedy scene for me now is, you know, all kinds of people, Sarah Pascoe and um, Sarah Kendall and, uh, you know, lots of Australians and uh, there oh, are yeah. just I mean, women. Ce Celia Pacola's new show yeah, with Luke McGregor oh, is great. brilliant Celia. and Celia's brilliant and there's so many, I mean, in the Australian scene. But no, don't I, know, I, I actually saw you at the Opera House supporting Sarah Silverman. Oh, is that right? I <laughs> yeah. love. I mean, I love Sarah Silverman. Yeah. That was that was that was great fun times. Th yeah. That was a real thrill for me because I actually was a great fan of hers yeah, yeah. beforehand. So that was that was very exciting. Okay, look, uh, I, I do want to ask you a few more questions before we go. So, uh, this we're recording this a week out from the U.S. election. Well, not not even like uh, it's going to. It's so. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction or anything, but how do you feel about the state of the world in light of, you know, what's been happening in the UK, you know, what, what we see happening, you know, in America at the moment? Are you, you know, are you optimistic about where we are in the world? Do you feel like this is w the way things always are to one degree or another, or are we in a time where everything's a bit... Oh, I think it's really dangerous, and right. it's also really difficult for a journalist. I used to be able to predict elections. I I had a pretty I didn't go out there on the radio and say this is going to happen, but privately people who know me know that I used to generally have a really strong feel and uh, when when there was a landslide coming I'd 
knew there was a landslide when it was going to be really tight. I knew it was going to be really tight. But just in the last few years, I can't do it anymore. I think there's something gone badly wrong with polling. That's one of the things that's happening. One of the things that, that the, one of the things that feeds into that is just during I was uh, on sick leave. I was I've been having a, some radiation tr- therapy at this year's election, and uh, so I was down in the country, and quite a few people were saying to me, "Ah, oh, just keep on getting these robocall um, questions from pollsters." And uh, because it's a robot, I just lie to them. Right. I think it's hilarious that I can just lie to them. And I, I heard that anecdotally from a lot of people. So I think people are lying to pollsters to some degree. I think there is a, uh, I think there's also a factor that people are lying to pollsters because there are, they don't really, um, for instance, in the Brexit poll, I think a lot of people, because it was associated with anti-migration a lot of people lied to human pollsters because they didn't they thought they would be seen as racist i mean that's the All interesting that. thing about the trump numbers that yeah. nobody can quite put their yeah. finger on is yeah, that's how many worrying. people in privacy w- might go in there who never would have said out loud and may not even tell their friends ever that they did yeah. it but might go you know this is the the choice uh that okay so America obviously is a big influential country on the state of the world and it does feel like everything's moving around big Game of Thrones at the moment, you know. Yep. Putin's back and obviously China, you know, are making some moves just establishing their power around the world in the way that they're doing it. And it does feel like a lot of things are moving into place. You've obviously spent a lot of time in the Middle East as well over the journey. How do you feel about like where things are placed? Is this... Uh, to me, it just feels like it doesn't feel like I remember the Cold War. I remember kind of the end of the Cold War, sure. and I remember all that. I and my book I, is really about the Cold War. Well, I wasn't around enough to feel what happened before that, mm. but it feels to me at the moment, having watched Game of Thrones, mm. <laughs> that it, it's it's like for six <laughs> yeah. seasons, all yeah. these things have been moving into place, and now you have one empire, you know, America, the you know yeah. the one who always considered themselves to be number one, but really. Apart from nuclear weapons, there is no other measure by which no. you could consider them to be the number one country anymore. Oh, no, entertainment. Well, no, their economy is still larger yeah. than any other. And China's catching up. That's true, and and a lot of it, a lot of it is owned by China <laughs> as well. But yeah, yeah well, absolutely there's a, right. There's a historian called Neil Ferguson who calls it Chimerica. They're, right. they're locked in this sort of uh, symbiotic embrace, and that's what it feels like you know they're all locked in together in these different sort of relationships and it feels like instead of there having been one champion now there's four or five different sort of you know blocks or areas that all have different strategies but all so where do you feel that like you know in a world sense there's no dragons that's that's the worst of it i mean i'm sure there is dragons i think that (laughs) kim jong-un has been working on some dragons they may not be actual dragons underground dragon lair yeah he may have like just stuck some paper mache to a horse but everybody thinks it's a dragon (laughs) well if he says it's a dragon nobody's gonna he's yeah somebody's standing behind him with a lighter and contradict kim (laughs) jong-un (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to be fired out of a cannon. Definitely saw a dragon. Definitely saw yeah. a dragon. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, how do you, I mean, that maybe I'm yeah, completely... But with, with the rising fear over the climate changing and mm. the fact that if, you know, if what happens with the ocean le- le- levels rising, that it mm. seems that the problems with, you know, asylum seekers uh, mm. are only going to get you know, bigger because you're going to have, uh, you know, climate... Pe- people who are forced out of the homes mm-hmm. by the changing climate... 
it just feels like the world, the planet at the moment with our population and the environment and these sort of you know geopolitical issues, then it just feels like, I don't know, how does it feel to you? Without I've led the witness a lot now. How do you feel? <laughs> One about of the that? awful things is that, is that um, the biggest influence on population is prosperity. The more, prosper- more prosperous a country is, the less likely it is that the population will exceed, you know, right. 2.5. Uh, and, um, the, and so if things get worse, the worse things get, the, the harder it's going to be to control population. On the other hand, the, the rate of population growth has been going down, so that is a good thing, and if it continues to go down at the rate it's going, then that will be a very good thing. China, I think, is... Uh, not nearly as inevitable as people think it is because they've got massive problems of soil, water and air. They've got gigantic pollution problems and they're running, they're re- really running out of land. That's why they build these enormous skyscraper cities but which are also um, adding to the climate change, of course, because they've involve vast amounts of concrete but the the uh the chinese the, there is a quite a strong theory which is yet to play out that over the next decade chinese growth will hit its peak uh, because they've got this huge social problem which is the one child policy has left all the boomers the people the kids who survived the cultural revolution actually are going to be left with nobody looking after them. They don't have a social security system, a pensions system that is capable of looking after old people, and that's going to be a massive buffer up against which the China's, Chinese economy runs. The Middle East, I think, is going to be incredibly dangerous and difficult for, for a decade, maybe two, three decades. It's, an, it's, a, it's a roiling... Uh, mess that you know a vacuum which keeps like it's like a black hole that keeps on sucking more chaos into it and I just don't see any um, way in which the uh, in which anyone can intervene in any significant way that'll make that better obviously Putin thinks he can but you know I think he may be forgetting what happened to Russia and Afghanistan we'll see that Um, and then the with America it's just everything depends on whether Donald Trump gets in. If Donald Trump gets in in America, the thing that worries me most is in our region is that he has basically said, and this applies to Europe as well, he's basically said America's allies should look after themselves. He said they need to pay for themselves. They can't necessarily rely on America anymore. Now that's It's a founding principle of NATO that all the countries will go to each other's aid. So I'm really worried about Russia's um, ambitions to take back the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia. They will be the first to go. We've already seen what happened in in Crimea. It's not as if it's a science fiction project. And in our region, the biggest danger is, is what he's saying about Japan and Korea, South Korea. Basically, if if America says to them, "Look after yourselves," you know what they're going to do. They're going to nuke up. Right. They, they will be straight. And the, America, the Japanese have been forbidden, essentially, to have their own defense force. Really, since the Second World War, they will have to engage in a massive building program to create a defense force, and they will get nukes. And if you're South Korea, and you've got right just north of Pyongyang, you've got that 
um, demilitarized zone, and right. you know that there is massive artillery sitting on the other, just even without the nukes, there's, there is enough artillery there to blitz half of Pyongyang. Uh, to, sorry, I said Pyongyang when I meant Seoul. If you're in South Korea and you're sitting there in, in Seoul, right. just right above, just north of you is the demilitarized zone, and there, on the other side of it there is enough standard conventional artillery, never mind the nuclear stuff, to just blast your city to half to smithereens on the first day of the war. So obviously you're going to start going for a nuclear weapon. If America didn't come to our aid, how do you think that would change Australia? Because the truth of it is that we, because of the, our location and where we are, like we have leaned particularly heavily on the idea that if ever Australia was... Because there is no way we can defend this country. doesn't matter how many submarines they buy. Like, you know, they had eight. Putin bought four over for the G20 and we couldn't bring any around because I think three were in Western Australia and three <laughs> were being repaired or something. You yeah. know, it's not... Like, we can't defend this, this country because it is so big and there is so much area. We, we can't defend it if we were to be attacked. Uh, it's hellish the, difficult to attack, too, because it's so big. I mean, the, the, this goes back to the 70s, you know, when, when um, uh, people in the Indonesian army used to joke about Australia. They used to call it South Timor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it is so huge, and the, I'm not suggesting that the armed resistance would be particularly... St- I think, you know, we have a pretty effective army. There would be armed resistance. But, um, yes, it is very difficult to to defend and that's why we had the so-called Brisbane line in, in the Second World War and, and all of there's all this military theory about it. I won't go into all of that. But I just think it's it's much more in, impractical to for the for any to attack. Yeah, to attack. So do you think that we would we wouldn't be left undefended down here, you think if Well I think I don't I just without you know, the threat that America would come and look after us if we need it. Because, I mean, that's what we've had for the last, you know, 30, yeah, yeah, 40, yeah. 50 years is the idea that, hey, you know what? And that's why we have these agreements with America where yeah, you yeah. let them have, you know, army bases and stuff yeah. here is because the, based on this idea that if Australia is in trouble, it's the reason that we go to every war they decide to yeah, yeah. start overseas. No, I, I completely understand all that. But I think the, the thing is that if Trump gets in, there's just going to have to be this massive realignment right around this region. And if, if he says that stuff to the Japanese and the South Koreans, he might well say the same thing to us. Um, but then South Korea, Indonesia, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, Burma, etc., Cambodia, will have to start thinking really seriously about their own defences and it will involve some kind of realignment, with, and Australia will have to be part of that. But I don't know, it's just impossible to, to forecast that stuff. Uh, look, I'm just hoping my plane lands next week. <laughs> I'm flying over on election day, so hopefully they will have made their decision wisely by the time I land, otherwise they may not let the plane land. So <laughs> LA may be on fire. Look, we should finish up, although I could talk to you all day and I have a million things that I would love to talk to you about, but... Uh, uh, I want to mention your book because obviously, yeah, this is great timing. Your book has just come out, so tell me, uh, tell people what it's called. It's called Light and Shadow: Memoirs of a Spy's Son. So, 
the, the headline is there and it's been all over the papers. And if people want to hear a brilliant interview over two parts, uh, Richard Feidler's Conversations, which is a fantastic podcast uh, based on information and chronological order and questions that make sense asked in a concise way rather than me just rambling for oh, a while and on. then trying to... No, no, no. I mean, it's just a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, and totally. I think it's a brilliant podcast, Richard's podcast. So I. And I... I would hope that perhaps th- you could listen to this in companion to that. Listen sure. to Richards, find out the story, read the book, and then, you know, maybe have heard a few things here that you might not find in either of those two things as well. Uh, you mentioned the idea that when you were sick that you realised that you weren't, that death, you weren't for death, or how did you phrase it? What it's was funny because I think, you know, I say that and, and somebody asked me that the other day, you know, do you ever think about dying and or, you know, have you ever prepared yourself to die and I never have but then on a more general basis I look at the last 22 years it is now since I had a a very near-death experience and I look back and I I think what I've done is live every day at a time and take ever since I've you know the last time I've every every time I come out of hospital I think you've had another reprieve just enjoy every day, take it as it comes. If I die tomorrow, I'm certainly, I've thought about it enough, I'm certainly prepared for it, but I'm not looking for it. So I'm not, I'm not uh, in love with easeful death. I think there's a poem about that, isn't there? And, and you said the idea that you're agnostic. So do you believe that when you die that you are dead? Is that what yeah. you believe to be yeah. true? Yeah, yeah. I think you've got to pack it all in now. Pack, pack all the life you can into into this life. When I say I'm agnostic, I I I'm not. I'm just trying to distance myself from the really militant atheists. I I don't begrudge anyone their religion because it, I know how much of a source of comfort it can be for for people. It's not it's not for me, um, and also because I don't totally discount the idea that if not a god, there is some kind of super being that that has set up a series of of massive science experiments one of it which happens to be our universe i mean absolutely i mean absolutely i mean you know there there are smarter people than both of us who have posited the idea of you know of other versions of that whether they be explained by quantum physics and yeah. those sort of things those ideas sound as uh you know they sound as crazy i'm like, i use that word in the wrong like way for what i'm going to say but it, you know Religions. Surreal as religion. Surreal as as religion, and yeah. certainly, well, beyond our comprehension. Yep. In the same way as as religion is. So, uh, I guess, well, with that in mind, then the the question that I I really want to ask you is, why do you think it's this? Like, if you don't, if if it isn't, if you don't know what it is, why do you? What's your sense? that it's this? Why do you feel like you have been who you are, why you have the desires that you have? Are, are you a subscriber to the idea that those things are evolutionary? Like the, the reason that we have become what we are is that, that it is the way that we have reproduced and evolved and those sort of things. Like it feels, it all, it just feels very weird to me that if it means nothing, and by the way, when I say it means nothing, if if we are we live and we die and we're an accident in the corner of the universe, you know, blah, 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 that it came out like this. Why are you and I sitting here having this conversation now? What part of that could that possibly be? 
Well, that's part of the Stoicism. The bit, bit that I didn't mention about the Stoicism is that the Emperor Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic and Epictetus was a Stoic. And, and what comes out of their writings is this idea that the only thing... I'm a humanist Stoic. Uh, and the only thing that, you, that comes that you can do with your life is to try and give as much to other people at least as you take. Uh, and you can't expect to take anything, but if you if you act in a positive way, then not only will you leave some kind of possibly tiny positive mark on, on the world, but you will get positivity back, I suppose. Well, that's a really nice uh, way to finish. Look at that. You nailed it. At least we've got one professional broadcaster <laughs> here. Uh, Mark, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing it and taking the time. I've enjoyed I it so much. genuinely appreciate it. And uh, if people like the podcast, look, I am going to try to do it more regularly. I know I always say this. I do love so doing it. So many podcasts. That I have too many podcasts. I have an imaginary radio station. <laughs> it's even, if you want to think there's a job where you get paid less than the ABC, yes, it's at my, you, you've seen my equipment, Mark. Uh, all right. Thank you so much. Oh, people, if they want to uh, follow you on Twitter, where can they watch your... Uh, it's at Colvinus. At that Colvinius. Right? Vinius, that's right. At Colvinius on Twitter. Uh, thank you very much, mate.